how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 223, and I had a conversation with David Greenberger. Some of you may recognize that name. He is the creator of The Duplex Planet. When he was a young man, he went to work for a nursing home and would jot down the interesting things that people in the home would say. It was a, a home for men. And he found that, that they said the darndest things. Some said things that were nonsensical. Others would tell stories about their youth or wives that they had had or places they had been. And he started to, to collect all this information, these stories, and he began putting them out in little zines called The Duplex Planet. I learned of David through a friend of mine, Ruth, who has been on the show, Ruth Waits. And she said, you've got to check this guy out. Uh, he's really great. He's a friend of mine. You'll love him. I went to the site of his work. He's a performance artist, a musician, an essayist, and a listener, <laughs> a divine listener. And she was right. I was intrigued and taken in by what I experienced on the website. And this conversation was a true delight for me. He sent me files of his work where he set the stories that people said to him or the ramblings or whatever it was in the moment. He set those to music composed by friends of his, co-artists of his. And so I've interwoven them. Uh, into this episode. I tried to get my NPR on. What can I say? (laughs) I'm really excited for you to hear it. I think it's a fun episode and it's different than the others that have come before. In other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, can be found Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I have some exciting news. I've been talking about it for probably months, but I finally finished the designs and got everything up and running. There is now a merch store, a Hey Human merch store. I can't believe it. I've, I've worked really hard on it, and I'm excited to tell you about it. So if you go to heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll see there at the top of the page, click on the store thing and I did all of it on a a website called Art of Wear. So if you go to Hey Human Podcast, you click on the link, it'll take you to the secure site of this lovely company that does really fantastic work. I'm really excited to, to have it. I've included my artwork and Hey Human stuff and incorporated it into all sorts of things. So definitely check that out and uh, get some merch. Why not? Let's get the Hey Human into the world. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can check me out in my other things under susanruth.com. Definitely go there and you can sign up for the mailing list. And I promise not to send you 8 million emails. In fact, I only do it probably once a quarter. So you will not be over inundated by me. I want to say hey to everyone that might not be registered to vote. Get out there and register to vote. You can go to vote.org and find out if you're registered. Find out where your polling place is. 
find out how you can volunteer and be a, a poll person. So lots of things there on vote.org. Definitely check it out. I watched a couple new shows this week. Well, one old show, one new show. The new show is a Netflix show that my best friend told me that I had to watch. It's called Jiri Haji. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I had one semester of Japanese in high school, and I feel like it's failing me now. It is so good. Oh my gosh. I loved it. It had all the things. It made me very happy to watch it. Thank you, Ellen, for the recommendation. I binge-watched it till nearly four in the morning, so there's that. The other show that I don't know how I never watched it before is Voyager. Uh, Captain... Janeway is super cool, so don't know why I missed out on that forever. I'm really enjoying that as well. Those are my two recommendations that I am offering to you. Okay, enough about that. Let's get into this. Thank you for listening, and take care of each other. Stay well. Stay safe. Love you. Let's do this. Here we go. David Greenberg, welcome to A Human. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for this whole thing and this view now of these matching gray books here and this everything. This is all Shakespeare. Oh, okay. And then these are my classics here, and then everything else is a a mishmash of all sorts of fiction and nonfiction and anthologies and things. Yeah. We're just talk- uh, Shakespeare got mentioned this morning in my house because we found out there's we're having trouble with two different events that birds have gotten into. One is on the up under the attic, there's a vent, um, and they figured out that they can go in there and nest, and I can tell that there's they hatch babies there. So once they go and everything in the fall, we can put some screen over it. But now the other vent on the side house that goes to a fan that's in the bathroom, um, there's birds that are in there, and Barbara said that they're, they're an invasive bird that, that uh, chase other things out, but they were originally brought here by somebody who brought them to Central Park, New York, who wanted to have in Central Park all the birds that were mentioned by Shakespeare. They didn't live to see what happened. Anytime you bring in some species, it's uh, it's going to be... That happens a lot with plant life. You know, you bring in a beautiful plant that then takes over all the others. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, well, I I only learned this uh, in the past couple years that California, the the palm tree is not natural to California. Oh. That it was a transplant plant. Oh. Transplant plant. Okay. <laughs> Which is interesting. Yeah. I, I believe that's true also uh, elsewhere. I don't. I can't remember if it's true for Florida too, but it's wild because you drive, you don't see a single one, you cross the border and suddenly there's one. It's the token one. <laughs> well, it's just, it's. I think that's how you tell when something is in, in its natural habitat, when a mile away separated by nothing but dirt <clears throat> you know imaginary border there's not another one you know it's, it's right because normally there would be and in fact there's some plants that won't survive if, there, if there's they can't pollinate and stuff so you need more than one but mm-hmm. interesting yeah yeah plant life very cool so uh where are you now you're in new york yeah, I'm in upstate New York, near Saratoga Springs, mm-hmm. Washington County, east on the east side of the Hudson River, near the Vermont border. Uh, where did you grow up? Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie's like a uh, industrial city on Lake Erie. It's the one little corner of Pennsylvania that touches Lake Erie, so it's midway between 
Buffalo and Cleveland. And uh, it's equidistant from Buffalo, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. I was born in Chicago. My parents are from Chicago. And then we moved to Erie when I was, you know, two. And, uh, and my siblings were born there. And then um, everybody left. I, I, I went away. I was playing in bands, and I thought I better get out of here. And I knew they were going to be moving. My father's job was going to switch to somewhere else, and they were happy to leave Erie. And my siblings were all in high school still, so they moved to Atlanta. And uh, I stayed in the Northeast, went to Boston. Is that where you went to college? Um, yeah, my th after a while. Um, I went to college for a year in Erie because I was, um, I was mostly just playing in a band. I said, I didn't, and my parents said, now you got to you know, go to school too. So, so I went to college for a year there, but then the band broke up and they were going to be moving. So then I moved to Philadelphia where I had some friends and I tried being a really like going away to school guy, like going to Temple University and, and I didn't like that at all. Uh, so I quit school and then I had friends in Boston. I moved up there and got a job at a bookstore and after a couple of years went to art school. Did you know when you were younger that you wanted to head in toward the artistic pursuits or were you more flailing around? I think I, uh, I don't know that I would have had, have been able to describe it in those terms, but I think I've always felt that somehow there was a validity in my, my vantage point and my point of view, which is probably the arrogance of being the oldest or something. Uh, I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, you're an artist, are you the oldest in the family? Like, yeah. So whether that was um, being pampered, I, I don't know. But I, from a young age, I did feel not empowered, but just like that, whether it would be class clown or something, I've, I felt like, all right, I've got something that's my own. That's my own that somehow seems to resonate with people. I just don't know what to put into that, whether it's drawing stuff or painting or, you know, it changed form. But I think I always believed in the idea of the communication that's at hand when you're doing anything in the arts, that, that there was something in that. And I didn't know if it would be, a, you know, playing in a bit what it was, but I've always been drawn to those things. And your parents were okay with you expressing your creative side? Um, yeah, I think they encouraged it. They they did. Um, That's half the battle. I, yeah, I think when I when I was five or six, I was taking art lessons at the museum in Erie. And at the end of the year, I I don't remember those much. But at the end of the year, I think as part of their act of encouraging me, um, they had me sit down with some little book. It was a pocket book of famous paintings or something, which I still have. It's falling apart. And they said pick one out and we're going to get you know I don't know what they, were, what they meant but they got a print and had it framed it always hung in the living room it was uh, um, Edward Hicks uh, Peaceable Kingdom so I always knew oh I picked that out when I was five they, you know, they sat me down and said you pick so I think they always encouraged it my mother's a musician my father um, is an engineer but I think he always I think there was something in him that liked the idea of doing that not that he wished he could have but yeah they encouraged me they I, I would say they indulged me I mean I kind of was like bumming around I would quit schools and you know wasted some of their money and you know, I don't know so. So I'm, I'm guesstimating your age but were you part of the 70s culture oh yeah well I'm 65 so I graduated high school in 72 but I was going and hearing concerts and stuff from 1968 on when I was off 14. 
starting with Strawberry Alarm Clock in 1968 at the Warner Theater. I have a list of every um, music performance I've been to. How big is that list? Uh, long. I don't Ages, know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably 30 or 40 pages. I don't know. I just started it at the time. I th- that was another thing that I grew up with that my parents had a, were very organized about things. My mother, my father kept lists. He liked keeping lists and um, he had a list of every job he had back to when he was a kid. I think I just thought that that's what you do. I just saved stuff too. It's like, oh, here's my little identification card for getting uh, something in Cub Scout. So you keep that, right? Other people I know, it's like, I don't have that stuff. It's like, I don't know, I just put it in a box. Right? You know. So I think that there was some element of that that I picked up from my parents, for sure. When you've, you've been trying to figure out, am I in college, am I not in college, it's not really for me, whatnot, and you start a, working at a retirement facility, how did that come to be? How did you end up in the retirement facility? Okay. Um, I went to art school then um, and finished, uh, I graduated maybe in 78, 77 or 78, you know, a bachelor's degree in painting from Mass College of Art. Um, And so it was incumbent on me to get some kind of a job, you know, I was scooping ice cream and delivering flowers. Um, So I knew of somebody who had gone to Mass Art who was working as an activities director at a nursing home. And I thought, oh, I could, so I went and applied for that. Um, oh, but th- let me back up a little bit. Just before that, I had taken a trip to Palm Springs, California. Um, in that spring, my grandmother, who lived in Chicago, would spend the winters in Palm Springs with her uh, sister. My grandmother was born in 1907, so she was only 70 then. So to me, she's really old. But so you know, but her sister was in her late 80s or mid 80s or something. So they would fly there, and my grandmother would have one of her grandchildren each year. She would uh, fly us out to like visit there, and then give you a few hundred dollars for gas and everything, and you just drive her Oldsmobile back to Chicago on your own. Um, so, uh, so I did that. I did that a couple of years in a row, which was, first of all, it's fantastic to drive cross country alone. I was, you know, 24 or something. It's just a really I've powerful. Highly, highly recommend it. I've done it many times. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that, I mean, I'm sure you found this too. There are, there are just moments and vistas and expanses that are so incredible and are normal thing, no matter if it's somebody that you're that you're in love with that you're with you externalize your amazement by saying wow look at that and when there's nobody there it's just sort of like i gotta stop the car i think it's just so powerful um going through that alone i mean there's the desire like how can i ever explain this to somebody but it's just an amazing thing it's really well put and yeah on that, on that trip, though, when I was in Palm Springs, there were uh, friends of my grandmother's who were her contemporaries. I think she'd grown up with them, and they lived year-round there. And this guy was this couple, um, Herb and Hannah Feitler, and Herb Feitler, um, I hung out with him one day. I'd met him other times. So we like went to flea markets in the little towns around Palm Springs and, and uh, went and bought fish for dinner or something. And... I just had this incredible time with this guy um, 
driving around and just talking, uh, uh, and who was you know a couple generations older than me. And when I got back home, we stayed in touch, and I really thought about what was it about hanging out with Herb, and I realized it was the first time in my life that I spent time with the dynamics of a normal conversation and a, and a normal emerging friendship with somebody who was older than me who wasn't my relative. And your relatives, within that familial dynamic, there's a um, limitation, um, which is, there's also pluses, like, you know, my grandmother, you're still painting, you know, oh, that's nice, you know, you can be okay, they, they worry about you, so that's all good, you need somebody to do that. But then this guy, Herb, was just sort of like, so what are you doing? Are you, oh, really? You're scooping ice cream? Well, I did that one. So, I mean, it would just be a normal conversation. The same building blocks that go on with anybody, any age. It had nothing to do with him being uh, 50 years older than me. And um, so I thought that was fascinating. And and I felt, I felt personally like I got something from it. That experience of spending time with her was really uh, powerful, me, powerful for me to, I, to just be stepping into some new experience and pondering it and considering it. And I thought I want to explore that more. I don't know towards what end. And so I heard about this job at a nursing home and I thought, oh, nursing home, old people. Uh, I mean, I can teach painting. I don't know what I, yeah, so I went and applied for a job there. You didn't really need, I mean, it was like a minimum wage job, really. And everything. so I got the job. And um, as soon as I was in this environment, I just felt like, uh, it felt uh, normal. I was not thrown by it. You know, there'd be people who'd be like, oh, that must be depressing. And I came to it not knowing anything about nursing homes, social work, any of that, which was probably to my benefit in terms of what I wanted to get from this. Um, and I... Uh, so this nursing home was a 45-bed, all-male nursing home in a converted house, which is what nursing homes used to be until, well, the 60s when Medicare came in, it made larger for-profit entities built on the outskirts of town to be the, the primary business model. And the kind of place I worked for, which was called a mom-and-pop, privately owned. And so this guy who owned it, his father had owned it before him. So nursing homes sort of had been that. They grew out of um, things in the in the late 1800s, around the turn of the century, where a widow would like let a, um, like a, an old soldier rent a room in her house. It's like, oh, I need somebody to help take care of this. And then it's like, well, I'll have two of them, then I'll hire a nurse. So they sort of grew out of um, us being coming more industrial and people moving, and you didn't just have the farm and the family in one place. They evolved out of that. So anyway, um, that was my um, exposure to a nursing home was one of the sort that was now becoming um, extinct. Although at the time, it was in Boston, it was in Jamaica Plain, part of Boston. There were, I think, four nursing homes within walking distance of each other, all of which were in residential neighborhood, tree-lined streets, families next door. And, um, and then so all these guys who were there, um, it was... It was good for me to be in the company of people who I normally wouldn't know, not because they were old, but in the case of this nursing home, I think there were two private paid residents, um, and the rest of them were all subsidized in one way or another, either from uh, um, Medicaid or, or um, um, 
military um, pensions. But almost all of them, there were only a few that had any family connections, and there was a high incidence of people that had alcohol-related disabilities, where they had, had the, the sort of the peculiar, the, the sort of dragging foot gait of somebody who had done a lot of damage years before. They weren't drinking anymore and hadn't for years, but they were, were damaged from. So a lot of them, I, I say all that because most of them then that had no family connection, there were a few of them that did, um, a lot of them were by most of society's measures that they even would have been a party to believing were considered failures. Um, and so... But they, within, but that sort of was something that I understood that they knew. It's like, yeah, I, I fucked up. I shouldn't have done that. And I, you know, so they all just sort of knew that I drank myself out of my marriage or whatever. And, um, but they were in this place that was essential to them. There was nowhere else to live. And so they weren't there. Like my family put me here. They're like, yeah, that's all right. So they, they seemed a little, um, while a lot of people's, attitude always, especially when it was called nursing home. Now we just change the word so people can feel differently about it, but that's what it was. There's nurses, and it's a home. And there were dynamics. It was interesting for me as somebody who was 25 and had an apartment with roommates to see that now there'd be like two guys or in a bigger room, three guys that had beds in the same room, like with an end table and something. But they were had lived their life so um so long, they had, they had become themselves so much that it wasn't even like they were roommates. They're, they're in the same room. I was never even doing, doing that. You know? So these guys were sharing a room, but they were so separate. So it was fascinating to me that you could, they could just sort of roll with that. Was um, there a kindness in that environment? Or, you know, because you hear a lot about uh, the elderly abuse and things like that. I am assuming that this place was a good place. I thought it was really, I think that the places that were, um, uh, I think that a lot of it had to do with this guy, Ray Murphy, who owned it, um, who grew up around it. And he was a really, um, he was kind of like a, a really like, just a kind of a, a good, very good-hearted guy who was a mixture of all these different things. He was a you know cigarette-smoking guy who probably drank too much. Um, sort of a skirt-chasing, dirty joke-telling guy. Uh, his marriage had fallen apart. That, But when it came to this home there, he was like, it would be like around Christmas. I worked there a couple years, and he would just like pull a wad of money out of his pocket and just say, you know, like, hand me like $400. He was like, get some for these guys. And I'd go and get like 40 sweaters or I don't know. I'd, you know. Um, so everything was always... He was always, um, it, it was personal to him. Like this, he understood this is their home. And um, uh, he, he died suddenly. I don't know if it was a heart attack. So he, you know, he was older than, he was maybe 50-ish, I don't know. Um, and his um, estranged, so there was a, there was an issue then with who owned the place. I think it had been his father's name. It was an old man who was frail. So his estranged wife, came in as the owner because it's a profitable thing and um, I uh, I didn't get on um, with her too well because I think I saw that this was like a home and so all of a sudden people who uh, a home 
where people live. And the it became an unstable environment for the guys there. Like people would, there, were, there was a nurse who'd worked there since 1954. This was in the late 70s. I always remember that because that's the year I was born. I thought, you've been working the same jobs. So uh, like a maintenance guy had been there for 15 years, a cook who'd been there for, so this was like family to the people who were there. And now uh, because of the difficulties of dealing um, with her because she had been running hair salons and she didn't have this same feel for it. Um, and so she was, and she wasn't doing anything untoward. She was probably just bringing into play her own sense of how you run a business. And it could be said that Ray was probably terrible at running a business. I think it was, you know, it may have been on the verge of bankruptcy a lot. So I, I don't know. Um, so anyway, I didn't, I stayed there for a little while after that and um, realized that my con connection to the place was uh, for uh, myself and, and the, the work that I was doing that um, was based on my being there. So that's the other thing was as soon as I set foot in this nursing home and people were saying these things that just sounded resonant and uh, they, they were saying things that were rich with character but were absent the, uh, a full narrative arc, if that makes sense. So it was just sort of like... Non-sequiturs? Not, not even that, just sort of it's not a full story. I mean, the only reference point that uh, comes to mind a lot of times people get is, do you know the Bob and Ray, the radio guys? Bob and Ray routines are almost impossible to repeat. It's really about their interaction and just the sound of what they said. And I've always been drawn to that kind of stuff. So as soon as I was around it, they would just say things. They're like, what? And so I was writing this stuff down. And I had forgotten. Um, so I was writing it down. And so um, within the first month then, I made a this thing called the Duplex Planet. And the, the first one was eight and a half by 11 sheets just stapled in the corner. And, I, and it was filled with these things that I thought were like pithy and incredible little things and I got them all together in the afternoon for like to pass them out to them uh, these guys Xeroxed them downstairs there and um, they saw that there wasn't also cake and stuff and uh, they weren't interested at all really so um, copies that I took home with me though friends were seeing that night and they were reading it out loud and I realized so then I saw all oh, right you know, it's not for them, it's for everybody. This is me explaining to other people this world that they wouldn't normally see, This, these aspects of life where you're sort of seeing like, oh, he's like a, he's like a regular guy like me too, even though he's like, seem, you know, can't walk, he's in a wheelchair and he seems to not make sense sometimes. So I, I was just sort of showing this range of characters. If we're going outside, I'm putting on my jacket. I'm buttoning it up. Well, not buttoning. It doesn't have buttons. It's got a zipper. A zipper's better. The wind can get you in between the buttons. When it gets even colder, I got a coat and it has a zipper too, but then it has a flap that is over the zipper and that has snaps on it. Snaps are good because you know when they're snapped. They make a sound. Snap. In fact, snap sounds like snap. And zipper sounds like zip. But buttons don't sound like their name at all. They don't sound like anything. They're silent. 
Buttons are good, though, for shirts and pajamas. Real quiet. Buttons. 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 Yeah, buttons. 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 Ooh, buttons. You tell a story I, that I caught on a TED, TEDx talk <clears throat> about Arthur Brown's funeral. Now, did that happen before or after you began the Duplex Planet? I started the Duplex Planet right away. That was like a, a year into it. There was a guy there that the main the the main character is this guy Arthur Wallace who lived at the home, and I actually um, he was just a, he, he had had a newspaper stand in Harvard Square, um, and. Um, stayed up on current events, was really knowledgeable about stuff, had never gone to college himself, but had been right near Harvard. And he was born, like, I think in 1898, maybe. I can't remember, but um, 1896. He, because of his proximity and having a newspaper stand, or, he, no, he didn't even have a newspaper stand then. He was delivering newspapers. He met John Reed, who was going to Harvard then, who was, this was before the Russian Revolution, and Trotsky, whose name was something else, was living and working in the garment district in Boston. And Arthur Wallace would take attaches of papers for John Reed down to Trotsky, just to run, running an errand for him. Um, so he was around all this stuff, and he was fascinated by history and the Russian Revolution and, and all this stuff. And so and he was just sort of a colorful character. At one time, I... Some friends were having a brunch, and I just, this was a time of life where you just mixed everything together. Like, this is so cool, these guys, I'm going to bring them over to my friend's house. And, you know, everything is all mixed together. I'm in a band, the band will play there, I'll bring these guys there. It was all liquid, you know. And so I took Arthur Wallace to a, uh, a brunch at some friend's house, who just said that they had been reading him, and I said, I'll just bring him over. And it was hilarious. It was like, and it was also just seemed really normal to do that. Um, but um, there was another. There was a man at the home. Arthur may have been. Uh, he was in his eighties. There was a man there named Arthur Brown, who was in his nineties. Maybe he was like ninety six. He was born in the eighteen eighties. I, I think he might have been born in eighteen eighty four, because I remember thinking well, he was sixteen at the turn of the previous century. So he he died. Um, fairly, you know, he was gone the next day I went there and he so he lived a long life and he didn't seem to suffer he just died and uh, Arthur Wallace would um, read the obituary obituary page in the globe all the time and was routinely getting on the trolley and going to calling hours and paying his respects and so he was the only one who wanted to go to Arthur Brown's funeral because I asked him if he wanted to go I borrowed somebody's car uh, who worked there and uh, so it was just Arthur Wallace and me in this car and Arthur Wallace um, would uh, he would smoke a he would have a cigar in his mouth he wasn't usually smoking them they were just wet on both ends and um, and he had a hearing aid that he would need to, he was always monkeying with and he would be like jabbing or poking with something to fix it and pop it back in his ear and he would a running commentary about life outside the windows of the car and billboards and skirt lengths and stuff like that. And then uh, I think we had to drive to the North Shore of Boston from where we were, so it might have been a 40-minute trip or something. So we got there, and it was um, 
I think it was early November because there were leaves on the ground and we it was, it was clear where this it was just going to be a graveside service Arthur Brown and I lived with everybody so there were two elderly women who were distant relatives of Arthur Brown who had died and there was a minister standing there with them so I parked the car and walked Arthur across the leaves and everything over them and we met each other and then the minister said a very brief graveside then he asked if anybody else wanted to say anything and Arthur Wallace who I brought said uh, he wanted to and he stepped forward there were just five of us and said um, Arthur Brown was a good man he had the room next to mine and uh, the funny thing was he didn't like bananas uh, when his lunch would come up if there was a banana on the tray he'd give it to me I like a banana I like a banana okay uh, a banana is my number two fruit my number one fruit is a big mild pear and so I would tell people that as a way of explaining this is why I, I feel like I'm fallen into a gold mine or something I just write this stuff down the other thing that I'd forgotten about after the first issue like that it, I sort of finessed the whole look of it I was getting it printed after a while it was a two color cover and, and all that and it started to have subscribers and followers and sort of it plugged into sort of some different arts channels and popular culture things so people knew about it but then friends who I didn't see as often were from Erie so went to high school with me said well of course you're doing that that's what you were doing in high school. I said, what? And they said, oh, that, oh, that's right. I always had a pocket notebook, and I was always writing down things that people would say. still see out of my right eye, it's at about 40%. I can see the shape of your face now, but that's all I can see in here. And anything I want to look at, I have to turn all the way. I have no peripheral at all that's been gone a long time. If you give into it, it just makes you depressed. It's not going to change anything. You've got to move on and have faith. You can accept it or wallow in self-pity. You've got to adapt and get out and enjoy life. There's so much beauty in the world. I know that the news is always telling you all the bad stuff, but that makes you think that it's worse than it is. Most people want to enjoy life. You're always going to have evil people, but most people are not out trying to do people in. Most people I know want to laugh and have fun. They want to love and enjoy each other. That's why I don't watch the news. I love to watch The Price is Right. I like to see people win and be happy.
I would, uh, I never was a cigarette smoker. A bunch of my friends were. So I have a, a second notebook where I'd have them burn a hole through the paper and I'd write down their name, the date and time and what kind of cigarette it was. And at the time it was just sort of like, yeah, some wacky thing that Dave was doing. But now it's sort of like, oh, so some of those people are like, oh, we must have all been together at the same place. So it's a document of time and uh, place and without there being a narrative. So anyway, that, I got onto that whole um, thing about high school because of the continuity in my life, which makes it always seem sort of like, oh, all right. So I saw this thing and my mother kept a, like a baby book, you know, like, like you know, because I was the oldest. And so she's like a new mother at age 22, you know, she's 22 years old. So she was writing down everything, you know, when there were four of us, she didn't do that as much. I got the benefit of pages of writing like you did this today and for some reason I was looking for something in it and I, so I read a passage and she was saying about how I like to cut things out and make little books. I've read that Lana's sort of like stay in one line life it's sort of like I... I don't know I think it's it's actually quite beautiful and your have you ever heard of the the Ender's Game, the book Ender's Game Orson Scott Card? No. Oh there's a there's a a term that Orson Scott Card uses in Ender's Game called the speaker for the dead. And it's the person who, when someone dies, they spend their time gathering all the information from all the people that knew that person and then tells their entire existence to, to, this, to the town. And that's the speaker for the dead. And as you're talking about all this stuff, it, you... Not only are a speaker for the dead, but you're a speaker for the living as well. I think that's so beautiful. Wow. I like that idea that... Um, I, I'm not frozen, am I? No. Okay, because you're... Um, uh, a few years ago, maybe three years ago, a friend of mine's um, uh, wife uh, died after a, you know, an illness. And... Um, I'd met her once, um, you know, I had visited them once, um, you know, maybe three years before that. And, um, and so they weren't like regularly in my life. But, I, you know, I sent him my condolences and it was um, checking. Uh, he, oh, he gave me a call. And he was, they had planned, she was known in a lot of different circles in music and arts and in social activism. So she'd had all different phases in her life. And, he said, well, they're doing this thing at a theater. There's all different musicians who knew her, and people were going to, um, wanted to have this event he, that he planned for her. This was maybe five months after she died. And he wanted to know, would I, like, host it, be, like, the MC or something? I, like, I said, well, part of me felt like, well, I don't know how to do that, and I don't really know her. But then part of me felt like, if he feels like I can do that, there's something about myself that I'm not seeing that he sees because I trust him. So I felt like I should do that. So I did. But my, the way that I got a handle on it was like, I'm, I'm now need, I don't, I don't know her the way I've met her once, but all these other people um, had deep connections with her. So it's through their, whatever they were doing in terms of whether it was playing music that mattered to her or whatever it was that they did in this theater. That was what lives on, and I'm the I'm the one then I'm the one person there who's getting to know her as told through the people who carry on these things about her because everybody else had a real longer term connection with her. So I felt like that was my 
access points, like understand what I was doing. That they were all carrying on, like the way you described their carrying on for the dead. I lost my father when I was four years old, and my mother and I went through terrible things. Many times, believe it or not, David, I was hungry. And I'm not ashamed to say that I was hungry, because it was true. I bettered myself a little bit by learning at least a trade. I wanted to go to school and study a professional something, but there was no way to, because I needed to help my mother and my other two brothers. It was tough. I came here to California and worked in the fields, sometimes working on the vines, 110 degrees, sometimes very cold, pruning. But by the grace of the Almighty, I'm here. After working in the fields in Texas, and the fields in San Joaquin Valley up north, 140 miles up north, I decided to work in a market with the Chinese people. They wanted to keep me cleaning bones and doing the cleaning. They didn't want to teach me the trade. I don't know why. Anyway, I decided to apply to go to college in Toledo, Ohio, 1960, to meat cutting school. I wanted to learn at least something, some kind of basic trade. I was able to go there, but only had the ticket and $10, no more. I drove over there on a Saturday. On Sunday, I paid $10 for a YMCA. I had to report to school on Monday. Fine. Lunchtime, I was hungry. Nothing. No money to buy anything. Three o'clock. What are you going to do? What came to mind was to get a job, to wash dishes and have money for lunch. So I went to the main office and I told them, I explained to them my case. I came here by fate and you have to do something about it. You, you have to help. They said, we will. We'll lend you money, at least so you can eat. The course was two months. The second week, they sent me with some other guys that paid the rent for the whole time, and I didn't have to pay anything. I purchased an air mattress, $1.89, and put some air in. And the second day, it had a little hole in it, and I used to wake up on the cement. That's all I'm going to tell you. If you have any other questions or whatever, I'll try to answer whatever you want. this has meant for you? How do you internalize all these conversations? I mean, I imagine, how long did you work there? I mean, I imagine there were many, many, many conversations that you were the scribe to. Um, I worked there for three years, and, um, and then I came to see that I, I actually, I think I was a really good friend to them. I, I know I was, 
but I don't know I was that I was the best uh, employee because um, I would sort of defend um, I you needed like for state stuff you had to keep track of what everybody did like how many people were involved in an activity and then you know the state would look at stuff I'd get cited for like bad penmanship or like keeping poor records like some of this I felt like oh, what the yeah, uh, leave me alone so and like somebody like Arthur Brown who uh, was in his 90s the, the one who died uh, you know they, there'd be some push by like you gotta get as more people involved it's like and Arthur Brown's this dignified old guy he doesn't want to like make some paintings he doesn't want to do it you know I'd sit and talk so every day I'll sit and talk with him and they're like well that's not an activity it's like well I'm here to just sort of like connect with everybody and so I think that that part of it was, was good that I wasn't really trained in and I was just responding um, as, a, as a person to, to all of them and wanted to basically include everybody basically I was trying to have the duplex planet be my um my telling other people this is what it's like the, the the variety the range of being in this place and that includes everybody people who are funny and people who aren't people who make sense and people who don't make sense and people who don't want to talk to me sometimes and and get the full range of that and um that became sort of my operating thing especially with i became interested especially there were there was this one guy named fergie william ferguson who people really took to. He was a really um, jovial guy who would engage you in conversation, but he clearly um, didn't know. He wasn't speaking from actual facts and truths. He was making stuff up that were, in his mind, he's not making them up, though. Um, you know, like, stuff that just clearly never happened. And um, But he would talk about anything, and it, it was fascinating for me to sort of bear witness to these changes in, in people's... Um, mental state and see that all right so he's if this is an inescapable reality is that we're going to decline and are these parts of us start to you know, fall apart and one of those things is our brain um some of that is um traumatic when you're aware that it's happening but somebody like fergie he's just on the other side of it and he's like everybody's his friend and and so a lot of what fergie would say was absolutely um hilarious and um um, not in a hilarious way where I was laughing um, right then, but when I took these things out of their the context of being in the moment with them and put them in this other context of me making selections of what I'm going to put in and what I'm what I'm choosing to put in and what I'm choosing to leave out, um, a lot of it was really people were really fond of Fergie, but it was also a lightning rod of sorts that I was glad to have made because some people were. Especially once I started giving talks or doing readings of this, and it was out loud, and so there'd be a room full of people. There would sometimes be discomfort on the part of some people that we were laughing. And I um, considered that a lot and thought, well, my aim is to include everybody in this, including somebody like Fergie, who's not always making sense, or usually not making sense, but is happily communicating with me i'm not dragging it out of him he'll sit here and talk about anything making it up um you know real to him if my goal is to include everybody i have to include fergie and if he's not making sense do i then just leave him out of it that goes against the, what i wanted to say about this place and if in fact what he's saying is funny 
it's funny not because of his mental state. It's funny because the thing that he just said fits a, a definition of humor, that there was a surprise change, a surprise juxtaposition of words or ideas that just fit our idea of funny. And it doesn't mean that I was sitting there laughing at him. And it can be funny. We can share in the, there are our common humanity in that without it belittling Fergie, just like a parent or somebody, uh, an adult, repeating something a child said that they got wrong is not holding that child up to ridicule. It's sort of, sort of um, sharing in this idea that we gain access to thought and language. Beyond that, I mean, the, the, the difference between children and elderly is that while there's some things that are they have in common, the sound of the things could be similar, there's a profound difference in losing access to something that you once had. I used to go drinking, I guess, or something like that. They'll knock me out of you, right out of the picture, all right. Christ's sake, knock me right out. I used to dance, but I ain't showered yet or nothing. I don't do much now by the looks of it, is that right? I won't go any places now by the looks of it, know it? Stick me in there and go home. I used to go dancing and staying out all night. I won't do it anymore by the looks of it. Can't go anywhere on account of it's lunchtime. Dirty trick, got me licked. They all eat lunch and got me licked. Dirty trick, got me licked. Can't go dancing. I'm knocked out now, right? No shower. I can't go no place. I won't go nowheres. Geez, I'm licked now. Why do they do that? Got me licked now. Dirty trick to knock a man out like that, ain't that right? Where the hell am I gonna go sporting? I'm knocked out, you know it? Knocked out. They all go home, leave me here. Don't do me no good. got me knocked out. We regard the elderly as one note. And in fact, they are far deeper than that. There's, there's a, there's an ocean of thought and personality and experience but I think that younger generations fear what is to come. They fear the inevitability of what it means to grow old. And so, and to that end, they, they give this one-note atmosphere that the elderly must live inside to protect themselves. I think fear creates that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's fear. I think it's also, um, we live in a hugely successful uh, marketplace economy and 
one of the ways in which it became successful was by identifying us in terms of our behaviors and also shaping those behaviors. So, for I mean, I sort of step out of line with the bulk of my um, shared generation. I'm curious about things that are uh, different, and I like taking a look at, like, how are we being led to do this? But that's the role of a, a critic or commentator or artist or, you know, um, and for most people, are go along together, and nostalgia, you know, will play into, like, you can know that people of a certain age will respond to your effort to sell certain music, certain products, and that they also won't like certain things, which helps forge the identity of that thing for the people who do like it, meaning a younger generation. I mean, it happened in the 60s with rock and roll stuff, where in the 50s, where an older generation didn't like it. And when you've got two forces, one saying we don't like this and one saying we do, it makes an ever clearer um, delineation that it exists. It helps make it exist all the more as an entity in, that's available in the marketplace. And so I think that our behavior has been shaped further of most you know, of us profiting from that working so well. The idea over the 20th century was that elderly are a repository of their past. And in fact, that's true, but not to the exclusion of being in the present. Because these people who, like that guy Herb Feitler, who at the time I thought he was old, he might have been 70. So he had maybe 20, 25 more years of life, you know. So is that all supposed to just be looking back? And I I think for the people who, who find comfort in that, it's fine. Um, and for those who who don't, who, who want to stay curious and open to something, you just need to be in the company of those who, you know, you've got that shared uh, um, sensibility with. I think that in general, the, the arts in its purest sense and the, the thing that means the most to me uh, are about um, stepping into the unknown with a perhaps trusted guide who's basically saying, you're not going to know what's going on, you're going to lose your bearings, but you're going to be okay because you've been okay with me before. So whether that's music, theater, literature, whatever that is, and the stepping uh, into the unknown a bit, um, or just unfamiliar territory, is there couldn't be a more perfect parallel to life itself. And, you know, that you're constantly being in the unknown. Why does my side hurt? Why do I do this? Why do I have to get up so many times? And all these things that are changes to us, rather than... Um, just sort of accept it. We have no experience with accepting the unknown. And I think the arts is one of the ways to allow an avenue for familiarity with accepting the unknown. How has your work shaped you in terms of your getting older and being in the second half of your life? I don't know. I, I think that, I think life experiences, I think the things that shaped it the most in a way, I mean, I continue to do these things that have settled, I mean, somebody else could think oh, he's been doing the same thing forever, and that would be an arguable thing, that's what you could say it, and if you believe it, then that's correct um, I could say that about other people's stuff, but I, you know, I'm constantly finding things that are changing in this for me um, and I'd say that what's affected me the most would probably be being uh, being a parent you know um, having a you know my daughter 
and I'm a grandfather now too for 10 months um, what's that muzzle tub because oh, uh, you, you, you froze on my screen uh, a while ago That's, oh I did <laughs> yeah yeah it's been frozen for a while dear because I think sometimes when I don't hear ex something exactly by seeing what you said, I get it. But yeah. But um, but yeah, I, th I remember when she's thirty three now, uh, Norbell. But uh, when she, well, around when she finished college, um, and then she went and lived in Paris and then came back somewhere in there. Um, I, part of me felt like, wow, well, you know, this is like. This is like the main thing that I'm ever going to do was like being her father, mm -hmm. and 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 I know that, but that's for me to know. That's not anything. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. That's my own personal experience, um, and the other things that I do are for other people. Um, but I think it it empowered me as an artist when I sort of saw that that nothing that I do really matters as much as that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it matters, you know, to connect with other human beings. It's why you make these things and, you know, you do something. But um, I think that it really it really made me feel like, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. It's like I dug my heels in even more on everything that I was doing. It's like, you know, it would be nice if more people liked it or knew about it or did this or that. But if they don't like it, you know, I don't I don't. I don't care. But that's what um, shapes you as an artist. What about as a man who's growing older and will one day not be here? And that I, I imagine being around. I mean, all of us are going through that experience, and none of us know our expiration date. But you had this beautiful, and maybe still do if you're continuing the work of of, of talking to people that are in their last days on the planet, and I feel like that <laughs> would bring either more peace or i mean there's only one uh, two ways to go either bring you more peace or bring you less peace panic you more um i think yeah i mean i think the, the, the sense would be though that this would be some kind of training for that but it's i don't think you can ever know until i'm there yeah you know so sense. of the various things like you can sort of picture putting yourself in somebody else's shoes in terms of a certain job or taking a trip or uh should we I get married? Should we all these things in life decisions, but aging and, and things. I think it's really hard to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's basically saying, you know, if I'm not here in the morning, it'll be okay. Mm. You know, and which is a common thing for people to say. I can understand the idea of saying that, but it would be foreign to me now because I don't feel that way. So I know that all, I guess I have familiarity with the idea that that people go, um, it's like, it's time, I'm ready to go, that sort of thing. And the other thing, I think, for me as a, just as a, as an individual, as a man, is seeing uh, Ray, my granddaughter, you know, there's a different vantage point by being a grandparent than being a parent. Mm. Uh, you know, I must have got all these stages I went through with Norvell, and she was like, oh, I don't really... They get overwritten by the next vivid moment, and um, and so I was really taken with the just being able to stand back and be amazed. It's like, wow, here's somebody who's looking around and has no reference points for anything. It's like, how amazing is that? 
how much hard work. I don't work anywhere near that. Just looking <laughs> around, it's like, I don't know what any of this is. I don't have language even. I've not, you know, it's like, wow. Um, so there's that. But the other thing is I'm, I'm now as she's, you know, interacting more as, you know, she's crawling around and doing stuff. Um, I'm seeing, it's like, I'm seeing a, a future that will go on without me, mm. you know, um, like I, it's very doubtful that I would be around to see her at the age that her mother is now, you know, um, and that's, um, there's something, I think there's some people I could tell that to who would say, oh, that's depressing. It's like, no, it's really kind of beautiful. You know, here's this reality. This doesn't go on forever, but isn't it nice to just sort of see? It's like, wow, I'm seeing some kind of a a, a future. Something goes on. They're going to be okay. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that's immortality. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not even the idea, the the desire to be remembered or celebrated, because that's completely out of your control. It's like not. It's not about like making things for posterity or I hope somebody's like talking about this because I don't I think that's well, I have a feeling that immortality is more like the the genetic the, the the energy that you are that was then passed on to your daughter and in her and alive in her and then she in turn passes on you know the the wisdom of you and the energy of you into this next generation along with hers and it just keeps growing and manifesting to me that's a, that is its own immortality Be- yeah. beyond what we create outside of ourselves that energetically i think is so beautiful yeah well i mean i felt like that my my grandfather my father's father died uh shortly before they were married so i you know i, I year and a half before I was born um, so I never knew him um, but I feel like I probably like have mannerisms like him or because mm-hmm. I would see that in Nora Bell it's like why well, she does this thing when she wakes or you know there's little things that we do and uh, so uh, and, I, and I like that I don't need I'm not interested in family trees or any of that it's just enough to know it's like I've got some connections that I know, you know, I don't know, but that's just, that's good enough for me to know that. I don't need to know. I can't know the specifics of it because the things that are really kind of cool to me are not what job they had or what they did, but it's like, you know, oh, they would always sort of tuck his head into his chin when he would laugh or whatever, you know, little things like that um, are, are the connections that we have with other people emotionally more than the resume points, you know. Mm-hmm. What what made you decide to take all of the the things that you know that you had put together from Duplex Planet and and put it to music and get that aspect of it out into the world? Um, well, that sort of grew little by little. I think um, I started the Duplex Planet in '79, and it was you know by '81, you know, it was you know, getting written up in some, like, hipster places and arts magazines, and people were subscribing. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And so that was kind of a, a starting point. But then the music happened. I would talk about it at different places. I'd be, you know, asked to speak at something. And at some point, I think it was... Um, I got asked about doing a, a recording for a label, this label called ESD that was part of Disc, about doing a spoken word thing um, with music. And so I, I did that with Terry Adams, who's the 
piano player from NRBQ, and I'd known them for a long time. And so that, he's got a following. And so we did that, and then that led to us doing some shows together, and we did a series of shows in New York called the Duplex Planet Radio Hour. It was in 93 and 94. And, um, you know, I'd put together a different night. And that was sort of the beginning of it. But then I sort of was finessing what I, what I liked and didn't like about doing those shows. And I really wanted to find a way to weave the music um, into my talking and to not have it be uh, interstitial. And I also didn't want to talk as myself about them I, in those shows I would you know say well, this is Ernie Brookings would do this this and this and I'd do a piece it's like uh, I don't want to like lead people through it I, I want them to just sort of trust that they're going to get I don't want consensus I felt like that was about consensus mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what this is about then I'm going to do the thing and after doing that for a year I felt like this isn't me I can't do consensus I want it to be whatever somebody thinks it is. Mm. I'm not going to tell them what it is. They can certainly find out, but I'm not going to say Ernie was this guy born in 1898, died in, you know, I'm not going to do all that. I'm just going to do the thing. And if they like it because it, they like the music or they like it because it's, they think it's like beat poetry, whatever they think is fine with me. And the more diverse, the better and the better chance that they found a meaningful way into it that in the future might turn into something else. And I know that that has happened, that there'd be people who'd say, you know, 15 years later, my mother was dying, and that thing that you said, da, da, da. So it's like, well, good. And that's, I didn't need for everybody to get on board with something right then. And uh, so I say all that because I then began exploring how the music could be an element constantly composed through what I'm saying rather than um, and would allow me to just be talking and it would be understood that's a different character than this one the music was changed and um, so I, I just began exploring that in earnest with a couple different ensembles and large scale um, projects and those sort of grew over the course of the 90s and then I did a couple of like artist residency projects a thing for um Pica, Portland Institute of Contemporary Art, I did a piece for them. So then I started creating things in specific cities, um, which was a way to get it funded and create something there and then work with musicians there. Then I did a, the last three albums I did with this ensemble that I put together just to do these pieces of, of mine. I mean, in the past, I would work with some existing ensembles sometimes. And, uh, and now lately, um, I, I moved with the um, most recent CD called Good Perspective, all the conversations are based on my conversations with adults with disabilities who go to a day center in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. And much like my interest in getting to know people who are 50 years older than me when I was 25, I thought this is even more profoundly interesting because these people are, it's not even, I'm not going to become somebody who is born with cerebral palsy or was hit by light, you know, like could be hit by, or all the people either had things they were born with or had traumatic events of one sort or another that mm -hmm. changed things for them. And so I thought that's even more amazing because I, they're different than me in this primary outward way, just like the old people were different than me, but then conversation revealed that we're all just a bunch of individuals, you know, mm -hmm. I'm one too. Oh, you're different than me. And that's what we all have in common. We're all a bunch of individuals.
after I had my stroke, I dreamed that I was an FBI agent, and they called me Big Al. This guy that was having these monkeys shipped in from South America, and he was using them to transport dope he was peddling. And what happened was, the FBI found out about it, so we raided the place. It was in this big warehouse, and it had this chicken wire going all the way up, and they took the monkeys out of the cages and just turned them loose in there. So what happened, there was a bunch of us FBI agents like me, about three other ones. And what they did was they said, Big Al, will you get up there and get them monkeys down? So I climbed up there on the wiring and I'd catch the monkey and toss him down to them. Now you know how monkeys screech and claw at you and try to bite you, you know. Anyway, I tried grabbing them and they'd bite me on the hand. So I grab them and just toss them down quick to the other agents. And those monkeys would be all over them guys. They'd have to try to get the harness off them so they could get the dope off them. That's what they had, was little harnesses where they tied the dope on them. But when they caught the monkeys, the monkeys started biting them and screeching like mad. So they yelled at me. They says, God damn you, Big Al. Quit throwing the monkeys at us. I said, what am I supposed to do? They're biting me up on this end. I said, if you'd like to switch, you climb up here and I'll go down there. Because they had leather gloves on, you know. I didn't have nothing, and I'd have to catch them, and I had to hang on to the chicken wire at the same time, too. Anyway, we confiscated about $100,000, $200,000 worth of dope that way. That was just a dream, though but it was like it was truly happening. I was in law enforcement, but not an FBI agent. I worked in Billings in the Billings Police Force for a while as just a trainee. Mostly what I'd done there was directing traffic. When they had airplane shows, I'd be directing traffic and other stuff up there. But my wife could tell you more about the monkeys. I told her about the dream after I had it. And I might be leaving something out because, you know, I'm forgetful since the stroke. With these people at that center, I was really interested in spending time with them for my own personal experience. But then again, to like make something out of that to tell other people, like, here's this, here's these people that I think as a society we probably ignore on a much more complete and profound way than the elderly. Mm -hmm. Younger people might be bemused or bothered or annoyed by elderly, but in general, young people don't want to die, so you're going to become one. And they, they at some point know that. But people who have some noticeable um, disfigurement, disability, something, people look at them and have a sense like, oh, I'm glad that's not my child or my brother or my father or me or you know and so we we much, in a much more profound way look away from them and um, so I thought I just want to make the same kind of character resonant pieces that are don't always have a full narrative but are rich with character um, but then but remove the two things that are the most um, uh, confounding or uh, off-putting to people which is like seeing them or hearing them 
So instead, you're just with their thoughts and their observations, and you can realize, oh, that's, I kind of feel the same way about coffee, or, or that bothered me too when people do that in public, or whatever, you know, and mm -hmm. you can see your similarities. And, uh, and again, that's something that I state overtly, and it's there to be found. I think if you state something like that overtly, it stops being art in the way that I've that art matters to me, which is that, oh, I didn't know it was about that. I thought it was this funny story. That every, different people thought different things, and they were all correct. That's They're letting everybody in. Yeah, I'm an abstract painter, and that's my favorite thing about being an abstract painter, is that I can create something. And to me, it feels like something when I'm creating it, but it may feel like something later when I look at it. And when people say, oh, what is this? I say, I don't know, you tell me. That's... That's the beauty of art, is that it is a very deeply personal thing, not only to the artist and whatever it means to them in that moment in time, but to the consumer, to the, the consumer, not the buyer, but the consumer. As but the, yeah, the, the audience. Yeah, yeah, the audience. Yeah, And I, exactly. I love that. And it is, it is interesting to me that in the fact that we all take something in differently, that's what makes us connected in our sameness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. I I think you're beautiful and I'm the work is beautiful. I mean, oh, when uh, our mutual friend Ruth told me about you and I went to check out your work, I was so I was immediately drawn in. Immediately. <laughs> and I'm just I'm so happy that you have spent all this time on the planet doing these sorts of things. I think it's really it's just it's lovely oh thank you yeah how might people find you i know that you are at davidgreenberger.com the music there and the and the spoken word and art and all sorts of things going on so it's a really large body of work you've created throughout your life and continue uh, to yeah. create it's just like uh, yeah i mean i feel like when you don't know what else to do, you just, I just keep doing stuff. I do have large volumes of work I create because I think part of my work habit is that I do, I'm really good with short spurts of like a thing I got done. <laughs> like I, the idea of writing a novel would be is I, I can't think that way, but I can do these modular things and build an album. Well, I will, I have a links page at heyhumanpodcast.com and I, I'll put stuff for people to find you. There's the, the Bandcamp page, too, is where all the new... You know, I've never gone and just looked up... I think we just put in David Greenberger. Okay, well, and I'll put a link to... I'll find it and put a link to that as well. But, and, and actually, it's David Greenberger and Tyson Rogers. Okay. And so we've been putting up a new piece a day. He's the main composer I've worked with on the last three albums, but these are called uh, Everybody's Home, and they're all based... They're all like one to two minute pieces with music and... We're both, you know, he's in Colorado, I'm here, and we're making these pieces, and uh, uh, they're all based on my conversations um, with friends and family on the phone. I had a Boston Terrier. They were good-looking dogs, and we named him Buddy. When I'd come home from school with my cap on, I'd get on my knees and say, Come on, Buddy, take my cap. So he'd come over and take my cap off, and he'd put it on the chair for me. They're handsome dogs, too. You've seen Boston Terriers, beautiful dogs. I loved him. We had a nice backyard, and we made sure that he would not be roaming around the streets. But you should have seen it. 
He'd take my cap off and set it on the chair, but you couldn't ask him to put it back on. He'd go and get it, but he wouldn't know what to do with it. He'd just drop it there. He could get it for me, but he wouldn't put it on. He just didn't understand that part. Thank you, David. I hope you have a lovely afternoon. And uh, I really, I, I appreciate you more than you know. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's yeah. nice of you to say. Bye. Thanks. Bye now. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.